All right, how many of you are excited to start Romans? We begin by, all right, so Bible's out. You know we're going to Romans. You know where we're going all year long. Like every time I'm up, it, it, with the exception of state of the university homecoming deal, we're in Romans. So just go ahead and get your Bibles, open them up to Romans, get your journals out. Go ahead and get your journals opened and ready to take notes so that you can, can lock in on this. Um, this, is, this is time for us to preach and teach. So in that teaching moment, let's get Romans in our mind. And so remember, we have our slide with cross is how we're going to remember and lay out Romans. And so we're going to put that up here for you. And so we begin with condemnation. So go ahead and prepare yourself, all right? Like the first half of the fall semester is not good news for any of us. It's bad news. We are bad people. We are rebels against the king. We will get there next week when we start talking about some difficult issues right out of the gate next week. It's condemnation. Fortunately, we get a little preview this morning in 16 and 17, but we're gonna get to righteousness. And that righteousness is God's righteousness and how he deals with all of this mess. But it's also that God imputes righteousness to us by faith. We'll talk about that just in foreshadowing with the thesis of what's gonna be laid out by Paul today. But we'll get to that when we hit chapter three, verse 21, which we'll do this semester too, and then rolling through to chapter eight. Now, next semester, we're gonna, we're gonna go into the outlook for Israel. Spoiler alert, God is faithful. He's faithful to Israel too. And so his righteousness still carries forward to Israel. And then we're gonna look at sanctification. So next semester, a lot of little details about how do we live out this righteousness that has been imputed to us because we haven't been made perfect yet. We still struggle with stuff. All of us in this room still struggle with stuff. So we're gonna walk through how can we live out our sanctification and then we'll come to the very end and that'll be salutations. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, we will blaze right through that. That'll, I think 15 and 16 are all in one message at the end of the spring semester. Uh, you can read it, you can underline it, you can highlight it. We are just doing a flyby on some of this because it's so deep and so rich, I can't cover everything. And so this is where we are. All right, so now I wanna introduce the text to you. Have any of you ever been ashamed of something? So I remember a time as a kid, I, forgive me, don't, don't hate me, but I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. I always have been. Like, I, I, I'm living in the Carolinas, the steel curtain, it's the 70s, they're awesome. They still have six championships, so don't come tell me about another team, whatever. So I had, I had a Terry Bradshaw jersey on at church I had my Steeler jeans on with my Steeler logo on the back pockets. Yeah, that was, they were goofy. I had Steeler shoes on. I had black and gold shoes with the logo. Like when I say die hard, I was die hard Steeler. I'm still a die hard Steeler fan, but just not as much to pull for now as there was in the 70s. So um, Steeler shoes on. And we had a guest speaker at church that night. And the guest speaker was a Christian from the NFL who played for the Oakland Raiders. There's three of you that like Oakland, okay. Las Vegas, whatever, you know. So he gives his testimony that night. And then my dad, gosh, brings him down to introduce me to him. Okay, they were, there were pews. So pretend this is a pew. 
here's the aisle and this big, massive man that played NFL football is coming to me and I'm like six, seven, eight. I don't know how old I was. I was young, but I was diehard Steelers. But I had my feet tucked in behind the pew so that he would not see my Steelers shoes. And, and I was kind of covering up my Steelers shirt and my dad was introducing him to me and I'm, I'm like this. I mean, this guy played football for the Oakland Raiders and he could have just squashed me. Like, was ashamed. I was embarrassed. Have you ever been there? All right, here's the crux of our text. This is where we're gonna get to. Paul tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, we have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Romans text, Paul's writing to Rome from Corinth, AD 56, 57. We're not sure exactly when it was, but somewhere in that time frame. And we're gonna, we're gonna walk through this text. I'm not gonna read it all. I'm gonna read it as we go through it. But let me set it up this way. This book has been incredibly influential throughout history. How many of you know the name John Wesley? Anybody know the name John Wesley? All right, here's a little bit of history for you. John Wesley came to Georgia as a missionary. He wanted to be a missionary to the Indians. It didn't go real well for him. And so he ended up returning back home to England. And he said in his journal, quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but ho, who shall convert me? He's depressed. He's a missionary. He's depressed. He feels like a failure. Then on May 24th, 1738, this discouraged former missionary went, quote, very unwillingly to a religious meeting in London. There, a miracle took place. About a quarter before nine, he wrote this in his journal. My heart felt strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation, and that an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. What was the message he was listening to? That evening, they were talking about the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. That evening at Aldersgate, his questions were answered. The result was the Wesleyan revival that swept through England and transformed the nation. There's still a statue down at Asbury University of him. Paul's epistle to the Romans has been influential in St. Augustine's life. It was influential in Martin Luther's life. It was influential in John Wesley's life. It's been influential in many others. And hopefully this year, it's gonna be influential in our lives as we drill into what it means to be saved. So here is what we're gonna get to. The first half of chapter number one. In the first half of chapter number one, Paul's gonna introduce himself, the person, He's then going to pray and introduce a prayer, and then we're going to see his passion. Here's your main idea. Write down this main idea. The gospel is the saving power of God. Now, we could write down a really long main idea, but I want this to be memorable. So out of this section, here's the deal. We're going to drill in on the gospel is the saving power of God. That's why we can't be ashamed of it, friends, is because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all of those who will believe. Now, the gospel also displays or unveils the righteousness of God. And we'll talk more about what that means in theological terms. But we're gonna jump into that all throughout chapter three. 
And so here in this introduction portion, it's his thesis of what the whole book's going to be about. The whole book's going to be about how the gospel is God's power to save those who believe and to unveil that righteousness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's start with the person. Point number one is the person. Point number two is going to be the prayer. Point number three is going to be the passion. We're going to see the person when we look at chapter one, verse one, looking down all the way through verse seven. So let me read this to you. You can underline as you want to. Who's the person? The person is Paul. Right there in the very beginning, Paul. Now, here's the deal, y'all. Paul is a Roman citizen. Paul was trained by Gamaliel. Paul had all of these different accolades he could put forward. So if we were introducing ourselves, maybe I would introduce myself to you and say, hey, I have a PhD. Hey, I serve in this position, something of that nature. And sometimes we do that for various reasons. Paul is writing to Rome, a place he didn't plant. And the very first thing he's gonna tell them is what? I'm a Roman citizen. Many of you in that church, you're not even Roman citizens. Being a citizen of Rome's a big deal. I'm a big deal. I'm a Roman citizen and I got it from birth. No. Look at what he says starting off. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's walk through this quickly. Let's give a survey here of what's in the text. Paul begins with, I'm a servant. That word servant is doulos, which means bond servant or slave. He begins with the most important thing he wants to tell people he's never met as he's putting himself out there to say, I wanna come minister to you. Here's what you need to know first about me is that I consider myself to be a slave of Jesus Christ. I consider myself to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And he begins here with Christ Jesus. He'll say Jesus Christ later on. That's a title. He's giving them a clue. My theology is orthodox. Friends, I understand the gospel. The Christ is Jesus. He is the one. And I was called to be an apostle. Okay, don't miss this. Time out. Paul, who was Saul. Saul, the one who held the cloaks as Stephen was stoned, granting approval. Saul, the one who persecuted the church. Saul on the road to Damascus, the one who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And on that road, God blinded him and Jesus showed himself to him. So Paul, an apostle in that sense of seeing the resurrected Christ. Paul, the one who was pushing back. Friends, maybe you're in here right now and you're like, I don't know about this. Paul didn't know about this either. And yet Paul leads out with, listen, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. He's the one. I'm called to be an apostle. So if you're in here and you got a question mark, ah, I just don't know if I can believe all this stuff. Paul was right there with you, friends. And we're gonna get to where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was called to be an apostle. Now, apostle, two context. Official apostles, you have the disciples, you have those who've seen the resurrected Christ. It also means someone who is sent. Paul's got that in both terms, set apart for the gospel of God. It is God's gospel and it's not some new plan. It was 
promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So if you want to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the Old Testament. If you want to have faith in the gospel as rock solid, you understand how the Old Testament issues all of these promises and all of these prophecies. And then it's all fulfilled here in the New Testament through the Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David, a real person with a real lineage who lived a human life, fully human, and also fully God. He was fully human, descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared, now don't miss that word, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was God, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. He was declared to be the one in power at the resurrection. Even when he was the suffering servant going to his death, he's fully God, he's fully man. This is not adoptionistic language. This does not mean that all of a sudden after the crucifixion, God adopted him as his son and at that point, then he became divine. No, 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 that's not what it's saying. It's saying he was declared to be the son of God in power at that point. According to the spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom... We have received grace. Oh, he's leading with grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. Now that word obedience being thrown in here is not accidental because Paul's really gonna drill down to the fact that we are saved not by works. We are saved even as rebels against the king by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for God's glory alone. But he calls us the obedience of the faith. Friends, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. If you have genuine faith, you should want to obey your master. It's the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Here's your your missionary impulse. Why is it that people go to China and serve as missionaries? Is it because they love the Chinese people? Maybe, maybe. But I think the primary motivation for us for missions and for evangelism is for the sake of his name. Because we know that Jesus ought to be worshiped and praised and it is right for him to do so all throughout the world. And Paul here is saying that that is the primary motivation for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now don't miss this verse because this verse is gonna help tie this book to all of us. To all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So Paul is writing this to believers. When we get into chapter 3 and we start looking at some of it and we get into some of the condemnation... You may be thinking, why is he telling this to believers? Believers have already believed the gospel. But friends, it is, it is from faith to faith. We believe in the gospel by faith. We live out the gospel by faith. We constantly have to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are and how we're supposed to live the Christian life in faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wrote this to believers. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. And peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The person is Paul. Paul is a person who loves the gospel. And he can't even get out who he is before he starts telling them about the gospel that he is an apostle of to clarify, this is what I do. 
And then he has a prayer. The second point, a prayer in verses eight through 15. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. That's great. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's eager to preach to those believers who are in Rome. Let's walk through this, the prayer. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He's praying for them. He's giving thanks for them. He's also encouraging them. Look at how he's using his speech here. He's saying, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, was it really proclaimed in all the world or was it just proclaimed in the Roman context? Do we have anybody from Texas in the room? All right, there's, there's, there's some. Texas thinks it's its own country. You, you, I, I, they're saying that's true. They're testifying down here. You ask somebody, what's your favorite state? They don't say Texas because Texas is a republic. It's not just a state. It, we moved to Texas. When we lived in Texas, we went to one of our favorite shopping establishments, Big Lots, um, and we're, we're writing a check back in those days. And the lady who got the check looked at my wife and said, I'm sorry. And we said, why? And she goes, oh, you're not from Texas because our checks were still from the prior state that we lived in. I, by the way, I was also in there and I was looking at trash cans with a big T on it that was orange. And I asked my wife, what are they doing with Tennessee trash cans here in this big lots? Because <laughs> I didn't realize T was for Texas too. And so it was, anyway, Texans think Texas is it. It's all that exists. Perhaps, well, I can tell you, people from Rome thought Rome was it. It's all that existed. There is nowhere else. So was it mentioned in all of Rome? Sure. But Paul's being encouraging here. I want you to notice this because he's also gonna say mutual encouragement. Friends, this is, this is why we have friends. It's for mutual encouragement in the faith. I'm gonna come back to that. He says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, for God is my witness, whom I serve. Don't miss that. That ties back up to the first part. I serve him. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Without ceasing, I mention you. Paul was desperately seeking to serve others and mutually encouraging them, praying, I want to come to you. I want to minister to you. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow my God will allow me that I may at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you. Now, put a comma right there, friends. Do we have a passion for the gospel in such a way that we are always mentioning to the Lord, Lord, I long to see this person come to Christ. Lord, I long to be able to mutually encourage these people. Lord, I long to see somebody in their faith grow. Friends, there are people here among us at Cedarville that you know. I don't know them, but you know them. 
and maybe they don't believe the gospel, do you long to see them come to faith? Do you long to see them firmly rooted and established in their faith? You have friends back home. Do your friends back home, do they long, do you long to see them come to faith? Here's what he says. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers that somehow God, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you for long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to strengthen them. That is that we may mutually encourage each other's faith, both yours and mine. He, he's not being prideful and saying, I've got something you need. He's saying, I wanna mutually encourage you. Brothers, I do not want you to be unaware I've often intended to come to you. Maybe they're wondering why he hasn't already made it up there. I mean, he's Paul. He's, he's the missionary to the Gentiles. Why has he not been there? But thus far, I've been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation. Is Paul under an obligation? Is he under a debt? There are two ways to be under a debt. We take out a loan, we have a loan, we have to pay back, we're under a debt. Somebody gives us something though and says, will you deliver this to so-and-so? Then until I deliver it to so-and-so, I'm under obligation to deliver that safely to so-and-so. So you go home and somebody gives you something to bring back to school to give to another student. You are under obligation to fulfill that commitment that you said you would do until it's delivered to the other person. And what Paul is saying here, friends, is that we have been given a gift and he has been given a gift and he senses a debt, an obligation to give that gift to others so that until he has communicated the gospel to other people, until he has delivered that gospel out, there is a sense of obligation in his mind. I am obligated both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now, this is interesting because he doesn't say I'm obligated to you, the Romans, Latin hadn't taken over the world at that point in time like it eventually will. Greek was still the language of the educated society. And what he's saying here is, I am obligated to you, the Greeks, to the educated elite as much as I am to the barbarians, the barbarians who aren't the educated elite, the barbarians who may not have that education, to those who, to those who don't speak in proper grammar and live in places where they don't have all of these degrees, I'm, I'm supposed to get the gospel. I'm obligated to get the gospel to them just as much as I am to go into the high places and get the gospel to those who are of the educated elite. Friends, there are no barriers here. He's gonna say it's to the Jews and then it's to everybody. He's gonna say it's to those who are smart and to those who may not be. I'm supposed to get it to the wise and to the foolish. And then look at what he says. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. All right, we move quickly to the passion. Number three, the passion. Verse 16, you're gonna notice the word for as I read this three times here and then it's gonna show up again in 18. We'll come back to that next week. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's walk through these. So he starts off here for, that ties in everything else. It pulls it to it. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would we be ashamed of the gospel? Think about all the reasons. Why should I be ashamed of the gospel? Is it because the gospel may not be popular? 
Is it because the gospel was, its savior was a poor Jewish carpenter without political influence or wealth? Is it because they're not the elite in society and if we wanna climb in our social ladder, then we can't be too bold about the gospel? Is it because science says that there is no God, that the, everything just happened by chance, it's by evolution, it's not by anything else? Is that a reason we might be ashamed of the gospel? Friends, when you go to a grad school and you're in a grad school that's a secular location perhaps, you're gonna be pressed in to be ashamed of the gospel. You don't believe that foolishness, do you? You don't believe in those silly myths, do you? Don't you understand that science, in fact, says this and this and this? How is it that you can still believe in the foolish myths politically? I believe in the gospel and a host of people come at you immediately. You believe what? And the pressure is to minimize your voice on the gospel. Popularity. Many of you went to a public school where if you pushed on the gospel, you would be shamed. You would be ridiculed. They would make fun of you because you were trying to take a stand for the gospel. Friends, this is for us today. Just as much as it was in the day of Rome of a pressure to be ashamed of the gospel, there is a pressure on all of us to be ashamed of the gospel. You're afraid of being ghosted. I'm not even sure I know what that means, but it sounded cool to say it. You get in your job. And in your job, they say things like, what's your pronouns? Are you gonna support this agenda or that agenda? And if you don't, you're not getting the promotion. You're not gonna be the boss. Be ashamed of the gospel or else there will be consequences. There is a push and there will be a push in your life to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He realized this life is temporary, friends. Eternity lasts forever. Can I just urge you to settle in your minds that you will not be ashamed of the gospel? Now, why not? Why should we not be ashamed of the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation. This gets radical. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone, not just the Jews, but to everyone. This is the power of God to the people we don't like and the people we like, to the people that come from places very different from us with different customs. This is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We should put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, friends. That's it. It's not who is good enough. It's not who pleases mom and dad. It's not who gets a degree from Cedarville. It's everyone who believes. And then he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we know from Acts, his custom was to go take it to the Jews in the Jewish synagogue and then spread out. And so the Jews here first in priority and in proximity, he's taking the gospel to them and to the Greeks. Here's another far, because the gospel does something else as it's presented in the book of Romans. It reveals the righteousness of God. God. Now there's huge debates. We can't go into all of it. Is it the righteousness that God possesses that's revealed because he needs to be the just judge and the justifier? And we'll get into that later. Or is it a righteousness that God gives or is it God's righteous act? And the answer is yes, it's all of those. You can try to splice them out, but it's all of those. God is a righteous God and God grants to us by his mercy and grace, a righteousness that declares us righteous. It doesn't change us. We still struggle with sin. We get there in Romans seven, but he declares us us righteous. So friend, if you believe today, you have been declared righteous. 
but the devil tells me, and I feel like I can never be good enough. You don't have to be good enough. You're right. You can never be good enough. But God has already granted you the declaration of righteousness. That is justification. And legally, you have been declared righteous. Friends, you don't need the pressure of having to be good enough. You can't bear it. It's one reason we see so much stress, so much anxiety. This world tells you you have to be perfect. You can't be perfect. You just need to be forgiven. You just need to be declared righteous and the salvation, the gospel is salvation. It is the righteous declaration to everyone who believes. What do you do? You believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he'll forgive me from my sins. God, I repent. You're declared righteous, friends. It's revealed from faith for faith. Faith is how we start. Faith is how we live. Faith is how we finish. And then it quotes back to the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2, 4, for the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, there's so much we're skipping. And it's okay, because this is how we have to roll with this. So let me get to my application for you. Here's your application points. Here's what I want to make sure you get out of this text. Paul, a servant, is seeking to serve Jesus Christ by serving others. He wants to go to them so that he can have some type of harvest among them so that Jesus' name will be proclaimed. He is seeking to serve others. And that is one thing I want in my life and I want for you in your life is that we don't just serve when we're asked to serve, but we are actively seeking to serve others. We are seeking out God. What is it? Okay, so like the three questions that your generation just completely is, it, it, that just stresses you all out is, I can't do anything right. My life is worth nothing. Listen, if you think your life is worth nothing, seek to serve God because you can have an eternal impact by seeking to serve God and ministering to others. The right vertical relationship should lead to the right horizontal relationship as you seek to serve those that you're around, as you seek to go and minister to others, seek to serve. This is what we see in this introductory portion of Romans. Paul was seeking to serve. Do you have mutually encouraging relationships? Listen, life is hard. Uh, The the other question that everybody has trouble with right now that stresses you out is, I'm not happy. Or I don't feel like my life is purposeful. Your life has meaning. And friends, I think you've been sold a Disney fairy tale. Because everybody seems to put in your mind that every single day is gonna go perfectly and you should be happy every moment of your life. And if you're not happy every moment of your life, there's something wrong. Listen, life is hard. Life is not easy. And the more time you spend staring at a screen and the less time you spend engaging with another person, the more difficult your life gets is what the statistics show. So if you're feeling stressed out or anxious or any of those things, put down the screens and go engage with a human because God created us to have community that mutually encourages one another. Now, if you grew up like me, our hangout time with guys sometimes was we were gonna see who could cut each other down the worst. Ooh, burn. I don't even know if I know what that means either, but (laughs) you just chop each other down. No. 
For every negative thing you say about somebody, I'm just having fun. Say something positive to build them back up. Or just get in a habit of stopping all the negative stuff and encouraging others. When's the last time you said something nice about somebody for no reason? Not the child who's coming, oh, mom, I love you. Your cooking is so great. What do you want? We've been around the block a time or two. But the words of encouragement, because I want to encourage you with my faith and I want you to encourage me with your faith. So when we have that community and friends, it's hard. You have to work at it. You have to go do things that are gonna be awkward sometimes. I feel like I'm a third wheel. Be a third wheel. It doesn't matter. Go hang out with people. Put down the screen and engage with another human and make some more friends. But I don't like them. It's fine. Hang out with them anyway. Get out of your dorm room and go spend some time with other people. You'll find somebody eventually you'll like. And let me tell you, uh, we've, got, we've got some alumni who are absolutely killing it because they learned how to make friends at Cedarville. That may be their biggest gift is they learn how to make friends. Learn how to make friends. Get out there and develop relationships. All right, I got to stop. Do you have a passion for the gospel? I, I don't know if I can boldly declare my faith. Oh, you got to get there. Because until you can boldly declare your faith to others, you're really not standing firm on it in your own life. And friends, I'm telling you, this life is hard. There will be things that come your way that will not make you happy. And if you're not ready, they will shake the foundation of your core. Stand firm on the gospel. Because I'm telling you, we're reading a letter from a guy named Saul who hated the church, who all of a sudden saw Jesus changed entirely and gave his life for the church. There are faculty and staff here that can testify to you, this is real. Friends, if you are doubting, I can testify to you the gospel is real. Build your life on the gospel. The gospel is our only hope in life and death. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the one that we have to lean into, friends. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Don't be. It's true from creation all the way through to when he comes again and makes everything new. It will change your life. So press into it. If you believe, if you've repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, you have been declared righteous. You don't have to be good enough. Stop trying. You don't have to work to earn your salvation. Stop trying. Place your hope in Jesus alone. When you feel stressed out, when you feel anxious, turn those screens off, cover them up, press into godly people, press into the word. Because the gospel is God's plan for salvation and Jesus is our hope in life and death. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would just help make this real in all of our lives. God, you've given us an incredible book that you have revealed to us and every word of it is true. It is your word. It is inerrant. It's inspired. It's infallible. So Lord, help us to lean into that and to take the lies of the devil and replace them with the truth of your word. Help us not to live by our feelings, but help us to live by the facts of your word. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. But Lord, help us to feel an obligation to get the gospel out 
to be eager to share the gospel with others and not to be ashamed of the gospel. Lord, help us to display that type passion in our own lives for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.